Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series currently on NBC and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. My co-host is Kate Kolzik, TV editor at soundonsight.org and writer at theavclub.com. I am Sean Coletti and our special guest this week is Brian Zeller himself, Mr. Aaron Abrams. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Real pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, this week we'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 11, and The Beast from the Sea, written by Steve Lightfoot and Brian Fuller, and directed by Michael Reimer. And uh, just as a quick reminder for listeners, if you'd like to get in contact with us, feel free to uh, send us an email at thisisourdesign666 at gmail.com. You can also leave a post over when this goes up at soundonsite.org, uh, or you can hit us up on Twitter. And with that, we'll just kick things off with a little bit of Hannibal by the Numbers for And the Beast from the Sea. The episode features 306 lines across 11 speaking roles. Uh, the top three are Will Hannibal and Francis at 66, 62, and 49 lines. I actually checked this uh, across the rest of the episodes this season. and uh, How many did Jimmy to... have this episode, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have Jimmy down here at a whopping zero. What's oh, up with that? <laughs> what happened, Scott? Oh you know, man! Sometimes, sometimes it's only enough for for one of the twosome to get all the all the words. Sometimes they got to choose a favorite. <laughs> I mean, technically, you have like infinity plus one more than he does. That's, so that's, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I was saying, I was double-checking the, the numbers from the rest of the episodes this season. This is actually only the second episode um, that have Will and Hannibal, who we usually think of as our two lead characters, uh, at the one and two spot. So I thought that that was interesting. Uh, there's also 19 scenes, the longest of which is uh, Will visiting Molly in the hospital uh, at 35 lines. And the longest scene by running time is the home invasion, which we'll be talking about at some point during this discussion at 4 minutes and 56 seconds. Uh, but I wanted to begin the actual discussion and breakdown of the episode by talking a little bit about the idea of change, because this is something that's been brought up by several characters, uh, notably in uh, Will and Molly's conversation before Will decides to leave about how he believes that he's going to change by undergoing this investigation, and Molly says that she's not. Uh, and then also, this is the way that the episode ends when Hannibal's talking about Dollar Hyde and... Uh, his desire to change, and the, the final line of the episode is, don't you crave change, Will? And it's a very very reminiscent of the first season of Hannibal, which often felt like it ended on these kinds of uh, lines, these one-liners where Hannibal or Will will say something very provocative, and the episode just kind of ends. And it felt like this is one of the first ones that we've had in a while that ended like that. Um, but yeah, this idea of change, and I wanted to ask Aaron... Um, Assuming, that, and we hope this isn't the case, but assuming that this is the end of Hannibal, um, if we're moving towards uh, a more in-depth look at the the theme or the idea of change and how characters have changed and why is it necessary to change or even why is it necessary to just acknowledge that people change, um, mm-hmm. how, does that, how does that idea fit with this series overall? Well, I think there's a lot of um, duality with every character, um, you know, it didn't occur to me in this particular episode how werewolfy Dollar Ride is. I mean, they had that shot of a full moon, and I was just like, oh, right, he's a werewolf, essentially. Definitely a werewolf. Right? Yeah. It's crazy. It's basically like, uh, I mean, without all the fur, <laughs> he's, he's basically uh, at war with himself, and that's the sort of change 
that's when you get into issues of change where Will is trying, had tried to change and he got sucked back. Whereas Hannibal is sort of more like you have to accept the duality or, or just the monster side that you're fighting. Um, so that's sort of where you get into the yin and yang of things. Uh, I'm not positive that anybody totally succeeds at fully changing in this show, so I, I can't say necessarily change is the theme as much as duality, but uh, certainly in this episode, it's people struggling with the effort to change. Um, ultimately, I think it, by the end, everybody fails. I mean, Hannibal is uh, just when, you know, Hannibal goes through these stages where he's likable, and you forget that he's one of the most evil characters in the history of literature and film. <laughs> And he becomes reprehensible, and that sort of shows his face in this episode. And Dollarhide loses, and and Will Graham loses as well, I think, because he's sorely, he's basically fully back into it. He's sort of abandoned his family, and he's he's now embraced being Manhunter again. So what you're saying is it's an upper of an episode. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's it's, it's <laughs> there's a lot of action in that conflict. I think the struggle is so active. You have that whole house invasion scene, and that's how you can afford last lines that are. Like, as you said, sort of more psychologically, uh, um, I don't know what the word is, impactful. <laughs> and it feels like an end of an episode because now you're like, oh, yeah, you've been doing so much this whole episode. Now stop and think for a second about what the hell you're doing. And then it's like, dun, dun, dun. And then that's when you get led into the next episode. And I think that's what the psychology of, of Hannibal the show is so um, complex that you that the fact that they can end episodes with just a, a sheer like philosophical question. And it feels like a big action beat is really something. It's a real testament to Brian and, and what all the writers are doing. Yeah, this is a show very uh, like like you say, Aaron. There's um, the duality between Hannibal and Will is is at the core of the series, and and the the what they bring out in each other and these different you know the 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 quote that we get from um, oh, what is it is that from Faust uh, that Hannibal says at the you know, in that last scene it, there's two. Uh, two souls within me, whatever that, to paraphrase, but this notion of people not succeeding at change, yet this is also a show, and Hannibal's a character obsessed with change, with becoming, and with finding a kernel within people um, that he can foster and and change into something else, and and to help them reach Hannibal's sense of what their better self is. Yeah, I guess it's a bit of minutia where I always felt like he thought that was their true self. So it's less about changing and more about revealing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, what they're like, I think he imagines Will Graham to be basically one of him, uh, a brother or a, uh, some sort of soulmate, uh, if you will. And so when he's not, when Will Graham is trying to live a family life, it's almost an offensive affront to his true self and to what Hannibal believes the, the, the potential of him is. Whereas, say, Brian Zeller has the duality of leather jacket Brian and lab coat Brian. It's, it's, it's a never-ending, <laughs> complex psychological uh, exercise, the entire show. Internal struggle all the way, you know. Yeah, personally, I'm waiting for him to just slowly realize and become leather jacket Brian and just leave his lab coat behind. That's his true self. I don't know. I feel like he was leather jacket, Brian, in the earlier seasons when he was more of a dick to Will. And then he kind of, you know, put that away and became lab coat, Brian, looked at the evidence around him, said, I should have uh, believed you. I don't know. He became more of a team guy. (laughs) Before Will Graham showed up, he was like, I'm the cool guy who doesn't shave. And then he was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, we we joke, but 
Zelda's actually really has gone undergone some change from uh, the whole meeting up with Freddy and allowing himself to be used by her. And then it's actually Brian and not Jimmy when Will gets welcomed back this season. You know, Jimmy attempts to be like accommodating, but it, it comes off as maybe slightly offensive. And, and Brian's like, well, what he means is welcome back. And so it feels like the roles for those roles have somewhat reversed in ways. Yeah, I think there there was uh, certainly some growth. I think early on in the in the first season, um, there was animosity. I, I I know I was joking, but I do think that I thought uh, that Zeller thought he was the smartest guy in the room until Will Graham showed up, who's not an FBI agent and is crazy and sweating in the corner and not making eye contact. And I think that he um, uh, was certainly openly hostile uh, and rude, and to the point where he was selling out the team to sell out Will Graham to Freddie Lowndes. Um, uh, that's how sort of openly jealous and bitter he was about the situation. And then I think he, he also was always at the forefront of like, Will Graham's a serial killer. Let's go get him. Let's go get him. Let's go get him. And uh, he had to 180. Otherwise, he probably, I mean, in the reality of the show, he'd be fired. So I think it makes sense for him to have those tender moments with Will every once in a while. I'd be like, hey, Sorry again about uh, all the shit that I gave you. Uh, we're talking. Um, I'm swearing, by the way. I don't know if that's no. Right. That's that's perfectly fine. Right. Listeners know to expect that occasionally. Yeah. Uh, they, you're welcome to, to drink as well if you like. They watch a show. They watch this show. If they can't handle that, they shouldn't be watching this show. Sure. <laughs> I, I listen. People have different things about different things. Certainly, they won't let us air anything particularly nudish. Especially if it's about a Chelly. we got to blur that out. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Artistic nudity. Uh, oh, boy. That's the worst yeah. of all. That might be even titillating a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just thinking more about uh, Hannibal in this context, I think, is interesting. Hannibal Lecter, the character. Uh, because, as you both mentioned, he has been, like, the the conduit for change. The one who wants to move people around or uh, as you say Aaron help them find their their truer selves but I was thinking about him in this episode and his process and his journey from the beginning of the series until now and I don't really know how much he's changed one of my favorite lines in the script this week was about uh when Alana's asking yeah exactly yeah in my own way you know I always I have told the truth which is absolutely true you know he spins it yeah Go ahead. No, I think that's true. And again, you know, the same way Dollar Hyde is kind of a werewolf, he's like a, I guess the um, the icon that he would be would be like a vampire, a Dracula, where he's just so he's not really hiding it, <laughs> like but he's just so seductive that you're letting this monster walk around and the world seems to be blind to what he actually is. He's not he's hiding in plain sight, um, and th- that's sort of why he's so interesting is that you can see people wanting to get close to him. And as a viewer, um, as sort of Brian has always said in, in history, it's like you, the audience knows there's a bomb under the table, but the characters necessarily don't, which was what was so great about the show early on uh, in the show, in the season when nobody knew he was a crazy serial killer is just, there was all this amped up tension when he'd have scenes with people. Cause at any moment he could just butcher them and eat them. And you knew that as an audience member, but the characters didn't. And now it's amazing that it sort of still exists. I mean, he's behind glass and stuff like that, but there's still a, I mean, maybe not so much Alana, but 
all other there's other characters who you you feel like want to be close to him still. Um, Will Graham has certainly let him in, and as well as Dollar Hyde, but you know Chilton early on also had a scene where you were like, well, this is. I mean, everybody still needs things from him. Everybody wants things from him. So he still has cards to play. With Chilton, he just, because you're right, Alana, she has no fucks to give. They're they're all gone. Uh, it's very much the um, the Jillian Anderson as Scully like approach of there are no fucks. They've been they're all gone. Um, so amazing this season. I just love what she's doing and how much she's running with power suits and and how how kind of badass she is. But it's also scary because you're like, don't get too badass around Hannibal. That's like she really she she was close to him when he had that old fashioned Hannibal mask, and and she was they like they positioned her like right in front of him. I was like, that's a bit of a scary moment because you're like you're really close. She's really confident that she has him under control. Yeah, no, I uh, you mentioned the suits. My note there is Alana's pissed and looking fabulous because <laughs> yeah, yeah, the costume department's having so much fun with her. Uh, but but with, pissed really suits her. It, it does. It's a good. It's a good look. The styling's been good. But um, but when Chilton comes back, you still get that. You don't get this from Alana, but from him, you do still get the sense of he he still wants Hannibal's approval. Even now, he still is invested in in what this guy thinks about him and. Uh, and, and in playing with him and in seeing, you know, trying to see what their relationship is, the dynamics of their relationship. And it's just, it's really, it's very interesting. And, and I mean, when you have a performance like what we're getting from Mass Mickelson in that role, you can, you can absolutely buy it. But yeah, the, the notion of Hannibal never lying when, when Alana says, he says, well, I would have told you if you just asked me if my lawyer was calling me. It's like, yeah, I guess I also didn't ask, did you put people in my beer? Um <laughs> Silly me. I guess it's not technically lying. No, it's a lesson for us all. Yeah, ask that to all your brewers. But um, yeah, no, it's it's the the way that he wields the truth uh like a very malleable weapon. In this episode as well, there's like that's where Will says you're gonna let them die, and he says they're not my family. You're letting them die. I mean, he's basically saying like, oh, he's coming after your family, dude, right now. <laughs> <laughs> he's not lying. He's kind of directly telling him the truth. He's just phrased it so perfectly that it sounds like he's talking in generals. Yeah, he's ta- he's phrased it in a way to cause the most harm to 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 Will when he looks back on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's great at that. And then in the last scene between those two, uh, that one I think also really highlights what you've been saying about how characters are still. Uh, attracted to him or coming to him for certain things that they need because you figure after having visited Molly in the hospital, Will has an incredible amount of steam to let off and obviously there's nothing that he can do to Hannibal through the glass but the way that they talk and almost kind of naturally find their therapy session-like demeanors again, Will seems to calm down a bit and now he's talking philosophically once again so it's it's incredible how much power Hannibal has over people in that way. Sure. I will say that the march up to that glass and Hannibal's reverse march was as combative, I feel like, those two have been. And that's a sign of things to come. I don't think Will is Will's as pissed off with Hannibal now as he ever has been. And I think that's going to get proactive uh, yeah, in the, in the next couple episodes. He's not going to just be fine taking Hannibal's advice behind the glass. I think... And there, there's a collision course. That's that last scene was 
a key into a collision course between those two in the next couple episodes that, you know, and, and what's great about this episode as well is it really starts to vary from the Red Dragon literature, and that'll get really big the next two episodes where you no know, one will know what is happening and what will happen, and everything is going to get super dangerous, I think. That's interesting to, to hear, because um, as our listeners will know, I've not read any of the source material, and I've only seen Silence of the Lambs, so I'm very, I'm, this is all new to me. Oh, Manhunter is delightful. And so I, my uh, my friends over at Sound on Sight uh, have been harassing me, as well as Sean, is very specifically, to, to catch up with these, and I was like, no, I'm waiting till after, and I see the Hannibal version, because I, and then, then I can, yeah, check the other stuff out, because for me, it's so exciting to watch these sequences and so to know that for the other viewers watching and Sean I'm sure you can speak to this uh, and Aaron I'm sure as well and in a different way knowing you know having I assume read the script and knowing what was coming but um, as, as someone unfamiliar it was a very exciting sequence as we watch Dollarhide break into the house and we get you know in, in Molly's perspective the, that sequence for me was the core of the episode I know one of the great things about this show is that every review I read every critic I, whose thoughts I read about this or the podcast I listen to has takes a completely different approach to a given episode um, and they're all fascinating um, but for me I really keyed into that that assault sequence so that is that's a derivation from the books that was that as exciting Sean for you and unpredictable for you as it was for me yeah, it really was because obviously, like you said, things go down differently in the source material. In the same way that last week's episode was really all about the tiger scene for me, I think that this week the home invasion sequence really took me aback in how striking it was and how tense I felt. I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say that we should assume that Molly and Walter are safe in that moment, but... I assume they weren't. It goes farther than the literature, farther than it has in, in Manhunter or, or, or Red Dragon. The minute it goes farther, you're like, oh, no. How far is this going to go? How much farther could this go? Like, it's, it's, it, that's what's scary. Even reading it, I remember being like, oh, of course they're going to die. God damn it. <laughs> well, because they killed Beverly. So you know that they're willing to kill people. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's what's so great about, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to see what Brian can do when he's anchored to material and how he can sort of spin out of that. And it's also great to see him not be anchored by material. So as this goes, I think the next two episodes, you'll see him slowly free himself more and more from Red Dragon and spin out in different directions. And it, it, it's going to get, I think, pretty exciting for people who haven't seen it. And then, uh, you know, for you, Kate, it, it, for, to go back and look at, Manhunter or, or read the books or whatever you're planning on doing or to talk about with other people, I, I think it'll be exciting as well. What the Home Invasion sequence also does is really highlight um, what Hannibal says about it. she survived the Red Dragon. It takes more than luck, and that really develops Molly's character more and more, like how intelligent she is, how crafty she is, and she's really not had much screen time at all, but I feel like maybe in certain cases in the past, other characters haven't been treated as, I guess, nuanced as quickly as Molly's been given this season. Nina Arianda is so good. <laughs> She's fantastic in this episode specifically, and she really gets to shine um, in that sequence, but also then at the uh, hospital later. And we really liked her on the phone with Will previously, and in her other scenes, she's been really warm and put a lot of character into just a few moments. I I thought she nailed this episode. I thought it was just so good. Yeah, she's really great at being just naturally funny, which is 
it pops really hard on a show like a show like this that's sort of so vo- like just dark um and every scene she has sort of makes you smile and also she's bringing so much strength that's probably just a natural thing she's doing but it it, it is true like she's a victim um in that home invasion but she's so like virile and just like she's you, you feel like oh she's not going to go down without a fight and that somehow makes it scarier I love that this show can do that. They can have these sort of horror movie tropes where it's just like man in the house with woman and child. And it it can be old-fashioned and feel just as exciting as this crazy sort of, you know, chiseled men delivering poetic whatever to each other. <laughs> like this stuff that's completely un- unearthly. I love the details that are put into the. I got into this. I got to this whole Facebook thing this week. I, I shouldn't have... But you guys know how it goes when someone says something, you're like, but you're wrong. And I'm me. So we have to we have to argue about it because that's what the Internet is for. Yeah. So I got into this whole thing about writing and what makes good TV writing. And I love the writing of that scene and the details that are put into, I assume, somewhere between the blank page and the finished product. So by the writing, by the performers, by the directors, the shot choice, by the editors, it but all of that comes together to tell this story about who Molly is and also who Walter is. What kind of a kid is Walter that when his mom wakes him up in the middle of the night with her, her finger to her lips, he can keep a cool head and and do exactly what he needs to do to make sure that they don't die. Um, and like Molly giving Walter his coat tells him it's not about running as fast as you can, just getting out of the house. It's about being careful and being planning ahead and she doesn't go out the door with out the window with him. She makes sure she goes to get the car keys because hopefully they can drive away. And if they can't, it can be a diversion. And there's all of this attention to detail of of her making choice after choice and doing thing after thing right. And the only bad thing that happens is the guy doesn't listen to her when she says to get in the car, and so he gets killed. Um, right. And so it just it's such it tells you so much about who Molly is, and I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on why Molly and Walter are so calm in this situation. If there's a background of violence, I don't quite remember what the background was in the books, and if that was pulled ahead. I know that Walter is a thing with baseball, but there there's a thing where she's a single mom, so something happened with the dad, and I I find that there's strength in families like that. Maybe they went through something maybe not so nice once before where mm-hmm. they're a little bit capable in these situations. Um, they're certainly isolated. I mean, they're living out in the middle of nowhere, which is probably where Will met them. Um, and and so to me, it's, it, it is things like that. I'm not sure if it's um, if there is a whole backstory bio or if it's just the kind of writing that makes you think about those things and fill those in for yourself. It's certainly nothing they do doesn't feel nothing they do doesn't feels unbelievable to me. I mean, it, it all feels very natural and it feels like these are two people that just can survive in this situation. Which, by the way, I think also ups the tension. Uh, you know, making everybody smart, especially on TV, for some reason, to me, is always a way to to uh, ramp up conflict and make everything interesting and make everything. And then you introduce somebody who's who's stupid or the audience is ahead of or some you know, screaming ninny in a house where the where the monster is after. I mean, that that stuff is, is A, a little bit cliche, and B, uh, just not as interesting and not as exciting to watch. I mean, she could have died and she could have lived. If she was, if she was terrified and trying to hide in a closet, uh, you know. It also confirms 
her and Will's relationship, why they're together. She's this kind of person, and that mm. makes so much sense with what he's been through and what he's experienced. I just keep talking. Sean, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, no, that last point, I think, is really key for me as well, because as I was watching Will visit her in the hospital, it you know it brings memories of Will visiting Abigail at the beginning of the first season, and... Um, how those situations compare. And whereas Abigail was a female character who Will was uh, very interested in uh, in terms of she's a stray of some sort and he has the ability to take her in and he feels responsible for her, it's just the complete opposite with Molly, which is why I think that they are such a good fit. That Will doesn't like feel... Stray. Exactly, yeah. He doesn't feel the responsibility or the obligation, uh, not necessarily that, that Molly does for Will, but it's just that they complement one another so well, and that's why it works out. And it says so much about her that she's been through this. And I love that, again, in the in the writing and the performance, that they let her express all of that, that rage and that fear, but that she can still be warm and she can still be positive and she can still you know, that this didn't just, like, shut off that part of her. Like, for a lot of people, you think it would. Mm-hmm. Like like you said, Aaron, and also making everybody intelligent makes it more interesting. It also makes you think more and ask more questions. And I was th- talking about the detail, Kate, and how attuned this is to the detail in this sequence. I definitely agree. And it made me start thinking, like, oh, what would happen if Walter got hurt or something? How would she react to that? Where would she go? If if Walter had gotten hurt in this situation or just in general? Uh, in this situation, if there was a circumstance in which she couldn't get to him first. Oof. Well, I wouldn't want to see her in mama bear mode. Just let me put it that way. <laughs> I think the, the dragon would have a lot more on his hands than he anticipated. That's probably true. And yeah, Walter is no, he's no pussycat either. I mean, I think when he sits down with Will and he's like, well, you should kill that guy and then kind of walks away. That's a that's a kid who's been through it once before a little bit. Like had he's just like you know, it probably took him a while to accept Will, and now he has, and he's like, "Don't screw this up, you idiot!" And then just sort of walks away. That's that's also a tough kid. Well, because it's not petulant. The delivery from right. yeah Rodriguez, yeah, he has experience or maturity behind it. Uh, came back to what we were saying about Alana and how hardened she's become. Uh, wanted to use that as a jumping off point as well because I noticed especially in this episode, both Alana and Jack, who have been, you know, a part of the main cast since the beginning, uh, have also changed quite a lot. And with Jack, it's a little bit trickier, and I don't know if it's just me uh, thinking this, but it feels like just based on, um, you know, how he, what he says in the beginning of this episode about he, how he would be totally okay pushing Dollarhide to kill himself, but also the way that he doesn't really feel or at least express any noticeable remorse for what he's put Will and now Molly and Walter through. Um, it just seems like some of those sympathetic characteristics are a little bit less on in the forefront with his character this season, which is fine because, you know, it's it's been three years and these characters have all undergone a lot of things and he's head of this department and he needs to do his job well. But that just got me thinking more and more about change and how these characters fit into certain roles. And I never thought I'd be thinking about this with Hannibal, the series, because it seems more clear-cut, like, who we should consider uh, a villain and who we should consider a protagonist, etc., even though we're also supposed to be kind of attracted to Hannibal Lecter as a character. But these roles of protagonist, antagonist, hero, villain, anti-hero, especially now that this season's trying to really push us to consider Dollarhide and how he is 
like you said, a, a dual character. That it's not just the serial killer in him, but we see that side of him with Reba as well. Um, so I was interested in like fitting our main characters into some of these roles. Uh, and I've pulled up definitions, which may or may not be useful at all. But I, I guess maybe just looking at Jack now, at least this season, uh, how do how do you view his character? Uh, well, I mean, I agree with you that he's sort of um, that that everybody's involved. I mean, everybody's continuing to grow, which is a testament, I think, to, to the writing as well. That people aren't just like, okay, we know Jack; he's the boss. He's kind of a a bulldog, but he's also a big softy. I think in this this year, he is he is different. He's grown. I mean, since um, since his wife's passing, and I mean, the first thing he does in this season is try to murder Hannibal, essentially. <laughs> just kind of in cold blood. He goes after him, he throws him out a window. And he feels zero remorse about that. In fact, the only thing he feels remorse about that is is not succeeding. And I think that whatever lesson he learned from Hannibal has certainly carried over into his work. Either, either when we previously saw him in the first two seasons, he was softened by his wife being sick, or his experience with Hannibal has hardened him. Uh, either way, he, he's certainly, I think, a, a harder character, and he exists more in a gray area than he has previously, which I'm all for. And, and I'm all for gray areas across the board. I, I love that uh, Richard's done such a great job in, in sort of having these extremely vulnerable moments with Dollarhide, where you, you can get behind the struggle of, of that he doesn't want to kill people anymore, and he doesn't want to kill um, Reba at all and is so afraid for her. I mean, that's, that's, that's the stuff that sort of turns, it's, it's, it makes, it's, especially with language like this and a show that looks like this, for everyone to be thoroughly, fully formed three-dimensional characters, uh, it's extremely important, I think. Otherwise, you can start putting things in boxes and, and, and things start getting, stop being engaging. With a show that has such a dramatic aesthetic and such powerful visuals and uh, visual storytelling and such very specific dialogue. If you don't care about the characters, it's easy to see all of the, it's easy to see that as facade and to not invest in it um, or see it as trappings and not invest in it. And because the writing and the performances really do get you to connect and the direction and the editing and all of that goes together to make you connect with these characters, then it feels immersive and it feels like part of the world. And it just feels natural that we have dragon wings sprouting out of some guy's back. Um, But it can get away with how violent it is because it's more psychologically and emotionally violent, which I think is, is always been the case and sort of the, the thing that the show has been trying to do is, is in order to get away with how heightened and insanely, you know, disgusting the violence can be is by making it much more of a human, human uh, tragedy and like just more psychologically and emotionally violent that, that it's almost in the background. It's not really what the show's about. Yeah. When we talk about Jack, what I really keyed into with him in this episode, I, I love that opening sequence, the opening scene, which was lifted. Actually, it was originally going to be a part part of episode 10 because it was just nice to get a little comedy <laughs> in this mm-hmm. episode. Um, I didn't I don't know. I think it probably would have in some ways it might have worked better in the previous episode because Will's anger at Jack feels like an end of episode build to point rather than a beginning of episode start off point. But that scene, that tension with Jack before everything goes down with Molly, let alone what we get later, Jack, even more than than previously, feels like a bottom line guy. 
a pragmatist of, yes, I'm very sorry that your family almost got killed, but, but if your family hadn't been attacked and knew to some extent to be on the alert and had escaped, a different family would all be dead. So this is still a win for me. That's really how I feel like he thinks about it. Um, not that he knows better than to say that to Will, but that's sort of where I see him coming from. It would have been nice if anybody had mentioned, you know, that Good Samaritan is, uh, or person who was run off the road is dead. So one person is dead. But I do I do still think that Jack looks at this as a an unfortunate, but still check in the plus column. Yeah, he's, he gets too close to it in a, the opposite way that Will does. So they're sort of opposites. That's why they, I think kind of hate each other but they're also on the side of good it will get too close in a way where he goes insane whereas jack keeps a sort of distance in that way but he is just about saving lives the bottom line of things and he's extremely invested in that certainly if anybody dies he takes it very personally or he takes it he takes it very hard whereas will is uh is trying to save people but without becoming a murderer himself, kind of. And I guess that's where some of my problems lie, is that it's much easier to get on board with and understand the person whose empathy disorder allows you to really sympathize with some of the victims of the show versus the character who's so detached but whose end goals are still the same as the other person um, makes it feel like he's just cold, which is sometimes how it comes off. Well, and especially when we don't have, you know, Bella there to to help show that other side of him. Yeah, and I, I think it also serves, I mean, to me it serves, a, things are spinning a little bit on its axis, but when Will was introduced, I, I'm not positive he was the most sympathetic dude in the world. He was sweaty and weird. <laughs> he was certainly a tough guy to sort of, for a lead of a show, he was, it was a tough character, and that's why Jack had to be so personable. This whole episodes, I think, with Bella, where he, where he's the A storyline of the of the episodes, and that's because you had two crazy people in the show. Um, now that Will is I, more than fifty percent sane, or at least a guy I can relate to, just out of understanding over three seasons, Jack can be an antagonist to him as opposed to another protagonist. And it adds to the weight of Will's problems, etc. Mm-hmm. So here's the, the definition of antagonist. Uh, a person who actively opposes or is hostile to someone or something, which is very vague and open-ended because pretty much every single character in this series or in any fiction opposes someone or something. So sure. everybody is an antagonist. Jimmy and uh, Scott and I are certainly antagonists to uh, not fucking around. <laughs> Uh, And then looking at hero, the definition here is a person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. And this is where I think it's interesting looking at somebody like Francis Dollarhide, who is at some points Francis and is at some points the Red Dragon, because through Reba's perspective, maybe up until their final scene together in uh, in this episode, you can almost see how he might be considered heroic. He certainly displays some heroic tendencies, I think. I mean, he, he, he's doing what he believes to be the right thing, is saving Reba's life at great personal pain to him. I mean, that's a heroic gesture, whether or not he succeeds in the end. Also, you know, 
he murders whole families. So there's also that. Details. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and this notion of the characters being sort of situationally antagonistic or um, having a, such a different role, in, depending on which other character you relate them to, I, that that really feels like a, a core element of of Hannibal um, and over the over the whole series run. But a character like Dollarhide certainly brings that to the fore. The, the the what we get this week of the dragon, the voice of the dragon, which as I understand it is a big thing from the books, is like all caps text and everything. So we finally hear the dragon. I love the choice to have uh, Richard Armitage uh, Armitage do that voice rather than bringing in somebody else for it. But um, we we do meet the dragon and having, you know, having that sort of underlines even more, here is the villain and the here is the hero within the same person. It's a fascinating sequence, I think. Uh, and it's really great acting and it's a really good decision uh, to just shoot him from the back. And also... The camera's above him as well, which kind of shows that elevation that we usually see from the dragon. And also the the fight between the two, I thought, was uh, another very explicit example of uh, showing both of those two characters in one. Are you glad that... Uh, is that the kind of scene that you want to get Brian in a little action? That he can you know join the Dollarhide Fight Club? Or is that more uh, glad to I'm, not I'm all have... for any action I can get. Yeah, They're all great with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he—he, he, I, I can't imagine how hard those scenes are to do. And Richard's doing such a phenomenal job. I mean, um, on paper, it's just extremely daunting. I mean, all the roles are. Will Graham's an impossible role, I think, on paper. The fact that Mads has to has to reinvent a character that's iconic and it has to be new, and people have to embrace it, but it has to be familiar. I mean, it's just. It seems impossible, doesn't it? And then Richard having to do these scenes where he's like punching himself in the face and he's talking to himself and running around, but he's also still existing in the world as a sympathetic sort of you know, quiet, shy guy. It's it's uh, it's a lot of work for everyone, and and uh, um, and and I think that everyone really steps up to the plate. I, it starts with with Brian, and it just filters down to everybody. This episode also features. Uh another breakup scene for this season earlier uh, in episode seven, we got will finally cutting ties with Hannibal. Uh, we know that of course they meet up again, but th- that was very much a breakup scene. And in this episode, it's Francis and Reba. And in both of them, it seems like here's a character making a decision. Uh, that's probably for the betterment of both of them. But in Will's case, it's him recognizing that Hannibal is not good for him. In Francis's case, it's him recognizing that he's not good for Reba. Uh, but did you notice anything else, parallels, I guess, between those two breakups, Aaron, uh, as you were watching this? Well, certainly, I, I think it's interesting how much pain uh, was involved with Reba and Richard, or Reba and, and, and uh, Dollarhide compared to the sort of resolve it took for uh, Will and, and Hannibal. Or I, I just think, or for Will and, um, it, like, it, it almost seemed like they were trying to think logically, whereas one was, it's completely illogical because he couldn't really get into it. And Reba had to ground him. I mean, they were, uh, they're both really emotionally tough scenes. I mean, they're, to me, those are the two scenes that are as hard to watch or harder to watch than any 
uh, you know, dragon or, or fight or, or, or bloodbath sort of just, again, just emotionally, um, emotional carnage, um, with people who, when Will's case doesn't deserve it. And, uh, in Francis's case, he's doing the right thing. So he's bringing it upon himself, which is just as hard to watch. There's an interesting contrast between them um, because, again, you get very much with the Will and Hannibal breakup. At least I'm thinking of in in Italy where it's, um, yeah, it's been really nice. We know this can't go anywhere good. No, actually, no, I guess I'm thinking of after afterwards in Will's in Will's house. Um, in Wolf Trap, uh, this can't go anywhere good, so we should probably break up. And Hannibal's response is, yeah, but it wouldn't be nice to kind of just pretend a while longer. Whereas when Francis is like, this is going to go somewhere bad, Reba, her response isn't, like, she doesn't do what some of us may have been expecting and do the, like, the, no, let's fight for this relationship or plead with, oh, don't break up with me, we're so good together. Instead, she's like, well, um, I deserve somebody who it will isn't afraid to be with me who isn't uh who will fight for me rather than push me away so you should just leave it, it's such a different it response there's a real thing going on how tough the women are on this show and they really have no problem calling the dudes pussies all the time and <laughs> are, are correct <laughs> uh reba specifically i mean she's completely vulnerable in that scene it's not like she's blocked off emotionally and just being like you know what dude it's she's crushed but also calling him on his on his bullshit and i think it's a really wonderful breakup scene from yeah. from her side especially Regina leslie and uh and richard armitage have such fantastic chemistry that's the one of the things that i've really been marveling on in this half season the the strength of the relationships and the our connection to the characters that has been established in so few scenes. So whether it's with Molly and Walter, uh, as we already discussed, or, or like it's been three episodes and I'm super invested, invested in Reba and Reba and Dollar Hyde, even though he's a horrific murderer and that speaks to their chemistry. They, they have a backstory. They're like, it seems like they're both loners who have found each other and they're had a Reba certainly had a strength where she was admirable for certainly what you imagined a, single blind lady to be like i mean she really was um very frank and very forward in a way that really made her just uh really likable right away and that really suited uh richard or, or dollarhide because he was um so vulnerable and so they had these quiet direct scenes where he couldn't he couldn't run or dance or he had to sort of be present with her it's there i agree they have amazing chemistry I'm adding me and, and Scott Thompson to that list of people who have oh. <laughs> amazing chemistry, by the way. Team Sassy Science, it goes without saying. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Feel free uh, to say it, though. Feel oh, free. they have fantastic have chemistry. Saying, that's clear. I mean, that's yeah. clear but... <laughs> we talk about that all the time, and just seeing your guys' names show up on the credits at the beginnings of episodes, like... When once it became established that we were kind of splintering off into different storylines, that that was kind of like one of the big highlights for us. It's just yes, all right, they're going to be here. Yeah, I, I'm not to sound overly fawning, but when I saw the the promo photos that um, NBC had released for this episode, I was like, oh yay! It looks and that looks like it's in Hannibal's office. That's, that's a scene great. that's not going to get cut out. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hopefully some of those make it into the DVD. We had a really, I thought, uh, 
our funniest scene ever was us sort of getting drunk with Jack in episode four. And it was a scene that had no business in the episode, absolutely. I mean, it was just a comedic scene. It didn't advance any plot. It was just the three of us getting hammered together. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, certainly the three of us went to town on it in a way that, I mean, hopefully it's on the DVD. But I, I really appreciate you guys saying that. That's uh, it's, it's really nice of you. We need comedy on the show a little bit. It seems like you're two of the very few characters who are allowed to be uh, comedic. Aside from, you know, cannibalism puns, which, by the way, I know you're a fan of from your Twitter feed. Have you checked out the Lecterings Tumblr? Because I feel you would love it. I don't, even, I don't even like myself when I tweet those things. <laughs> I, I can't get into it. I can't start becoming uh. that guy. It's it's a, it's an the puns are an embarrassing place to live. There's there's this Tumblr that is just this person. It takes gifts of Hannibal and of other reactions and puts them with uh, f- uh puns. And it's just Hannibal being very proud of himself and the other characters just hating him. Uh, that's that's all it is, and it's delightful. But uh, but no, it's it's nice to get it's all it's there's there's other fun things you guys get to play, but. It's reliably we know the comedy is coming when you guys are there. Yeah, I, I mean we we we. I think the show is pretty funny. We're a different kind of funny than perhaps mm-hmm. is on the show, and that we're a little bit. Um, I think we stick out of the world a little bit, and that's just generally amusing to have these two sort of bumblefucks running around. Um, but to me, the show is kind of delicious. Where I, I, I titter certainly quite a bit. I don't think the show is humorless or or dark in like a black hole way i think it's dark and it comes out the other side where sometimes it's so dark it's it's pretty it's it, it certainly makes me smile quite a bit mm-hmm. so I, I as far as tonally i think that they've figured out that it can be devoid of humor in the in the in the in the in a way that sort of scott and i are bringing it but it doesn't have to be it's, it never feels to me um empty of humor if that makes sense yeah uh all right the last uh i guess bigger topic that I wanted to bring up with relation to this episode uh, was actually begun in last week's episode. It's the idea of Hannibal pushing Dollarhide to go after Molly and Walter. Uh, and, of course, this is something from the source material. It's a big part of the plot. But uh, I think that it's recontextualized in, in Fuller's version of the story in ways where the motivations maybe might not be as clear as they seem. And the the possibilities that I have here, which are certainly not the only ones, they're not limited to this, but I was thinking of uh, boredom, curiosity, resentment, and jealousy as maybe being uh, one of, or maybe the central motivation behind this Hannibal Lecter doing this to this Will Graham. And I think that jealousy especially is interesting, considering how intimate their relationship has been on this series. Um, but I wanted to get both of your takes on that, uh, how what did you see as the central driving force for that decision on Hannibal's part? Uh, well, I think previously uh, in the films and I think also in the book, it's it's just that he's pissed that Will caught him. And so it's just revenge, right? It's just kind of cold. But Brian's added so much emotional history between the two of them that I get a strong bitchy X vibe from Hannibal when he's doing that stuff where it feels uh, – Certainly jealous and, and, and resentment, but it's a resentment that he's chosen this life as opposed to a life with him is, is certainly the way I, I pick up on it. I, I certainly don't think it's boredom or anything as empty as that. I think that it's, uh, it's, it's an emotionally driven 
based on their history, and he's still working towards something. It's not just I'm going to uh, kill your family for then then screw you. It's I'm going to kill your family and then you'll see the the light. It's there's some sort of end, there's certainly end game to Hannibal's games. It really it's a <laughs> kill two birds I guess with <laughs> uh, with with many many birds with a stone uh, a very uh, creepy black leather stone um, because because <laughs> it, it's you know getting back at Will not for catching him in this version but you know. He did this lovely, sweet gesture where he turned himself in so that Will could come visit, and then he doesn't visit until this putz starts doing things. Um, so there's that. Um, and it's also uh, what, what you were saying, Aaron, of um, getting putting Will in a position where he is forced, to, he loses this other life, or he rejects it out of, you know, this fear for their safety or any number of factors. It also steers Dollar Hyde um, and helps bring him further under Hannibal's control. I think he's having fun with Dollar Hyde, um, though I don't believe him for a second when he's try- trying to sell Dollar Hyde on this notion that this will transfer the dragon to Will. Um, but uh, it, I think it really does a lot. And then it gives Will more perspective on Dollar Hyde, uh, the way that he, um, you know, go, going through this, experiencing this, talking to, to Molly and Walter afterwards and, you know, knowing, again, getting more intel, more data for his, you know, his charts <laughs> about this guy. I mean, it does a lot all at once. Um, and even for me as a fun parallel, this parallels when Jonathan Tucker went to kill Hannibal at Will's behest, you know, like there's all their fun narrative uh, parallels to, to tie in, but yeah, it just Hannibal, as the, the show has said, and characters have, I think Will said this, he has many trains of thought going at any one given time and he can think about them all. And so I think he really sees this as a, well, this is a tidy way to connect these four or five different ideas I'm playing with right now. Um, and why not? It satisfies that curiosity that has always been a part of his character, where he wants to kind of just let things fall as they were, teacups especially. Um, but yeah, it's also... The, what I like most about coming into this half of the season is knowing that there was going to be that added depth to that relationship, where it's not just, he caught me, this is just a way to get back at him, it's... He hurt me in in many different ways, and this is acting out because of that. So I I really liked that that was able to that Fuller was able to get more out of that from the source material by virtue of going more into their relationship in the past couple seasons. Uh, but with that, we're going to take a short break uh, and for the moment say goodbye to Aaron Abrams and thank him so much for joining us. Uh, is there any upcoming projects that you want to let listeners know about? Oh, um, a movie, a movie called Regression that comes out August 28th. That's uh, a scary movie with Ethan Hawke and um, M. Watson, uh, where I play a dickhead cop who believes that the lead cop doesn't know what he's talking about. Should shut the fuck up. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you guys. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so that that'll be uh, end of August. Hopefully, uh, I am still in it. I have not seen it yet. Um, and then there's a couple movies at TIFF. Uh, the Toronto Film Festival that I think should be coming out shortly right after the Toronto Film Festival called Closet Monster and Never Happened and 
Uh, yeah, I think that's it for now. I'm gonna I'm shooting something this weekend, but I, I'm not. I don't know what the rules are. I'm starting something next week, but I think it's a fun action thing, and I think I signed something. So okay, so, I, I best not say anything. So people should follow you on Twitter to hear about that. Sure. Yeah, I will. I will relinquish information. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody will be stupid and, and release a photo on set, and then I can just retweet that. And I won't be because I'm a separate. I'm, I'm I'm one degree separated from the guy who's going to get sued, so I can do that. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be on the lookout for all of those, and we'll take a short break. We'll be right back. And we are back, and we'll go ahead and continue right away with our recurring segments for the podcast. Begin, of course, with Kate's classical corner. So, what can you tell us about the score and soundtrack in "And the Beast from the Sea"? There's one classical piece featured in this episode, and I love it. It was so awesome, such an awesome choice. That piece is Debussy's. Uh, where is it? Debussy. Oh, I didn't write out the French. Debussy's La Fille. Oh, I can't remember. The girl with the flaxen hair. Ocheva Delin, I think. La fille Ocheva Delin or something like that. Um, And that is featured when Reba is pouring martinis for herself and and Dollar Hyde. Uh, And the reason that I totally geeked out when I heard it come up is that, of course, there are only two women, I guess three if you count Georgia from season one, um, There, are, there's only really two women on the show who have flaxen hair, and he wasn't thinking about Bedelia when he put that song on. So as soon as that song comes over, the you know, like go, accompanies the martinis, but you know that Dollarhide's the one who put it on, you know that while, while Francis is sitting there with Reba drinking martinis, the dragon is focused laser focused on molly and i thought it was such a neat cool little pick so as, as soon as that song came out i was watching this with my sister i was like oh that's not good and she, and she is not familiar with the title of this piece i mean she's familiar with it it's a well-known piece but uh she sort of looked at me quizzically was like that's the girl with the there's only one blonde he's thinking about right now so while it's this lovely, beautiful melody, very simple, um, fits very well with the arabesque by WC from last week. It makes sense uh, just you know, orally to tie with their other previous scenes together. Um, it also undercuts that, the romance and the, the you know, the, the date that uh, Reba thinks she's having <laughs> with the date that Dollar Hyde thinks he's having or knows that he's having by, by choosing that piece. I absolutely love that. And then, of course, like, 30 seconds later that's confirmed when molly walks on screen um from the projector so so neat Uh, a lot of this episode has very um very similar sort of atmospheric scoring with um some like a sound wall uh, a down it's pretty low in the mix but but you know some some white noise or various things i do not have the correct vocabulary to describe and and then with some some piano or some percussion sort of layered on top of it at various points um the the scenes that stick out from that or the details that stick out from that is there are a few places throughout the episode where there's some mention of, of will and then the piano comes in so um when will when hannibal and dollarhide are talking and then um, and Hannibal says, you, you can you can toss the dragon to someone else. There's a pause, and then a piano comes in right when Dollarhide says, Will Graham interests me. And there's, there's several places like that where the piano comes in as like a reference to Will, because that is the instrument 
most commonly used for by by the composer Brian Reitzel for him, which is neat. The uh, the scoring of of the action set piece in the center is really very effective. It's it's split evenly, or not evenly, but it's split very distinctly for me at least into a hide section and then a run section matching the action on screen. So when uh, when Molly's in the house, when she's getting Walter outside, when she's waiting underneath the porch, um, the scoring is, uh, there's a lot more space to it. There, there's tension building throughout. Um, but when when she hits a car alarm and then they start running, then you have constant sliding up and down with this, with what the strings are and and just sliding pitches. It may be strings. It may be electronic. It may be many things um, that really builds tension and puts you into their shoes as they're, as they're running. It's just, it's, it's, it's relentless as they run as until they get away. Um, It's much more upfront. Whereas previously, um, oh, there's also some like really steady rhythms in the percussion there um, to be like their raised heart rate. Whereas earlier, they're a lot more um, unpredictable percussion elements that come in. So the each instrument is very purposeful. It doesn't sound random at all, but it's one of those things where the composer or the performer knows exactly what they're doing. But the audience doesn't know what to expect, so it keeps you on your edge. So just as it again puts you in Molly's shoes, she doesn't know if Dollarhead's going to go in uh, her son's bedroom first and find her and kill her, or if he's going to go for her bedroom first. And fortunately, he goes for her, her bedroom, and so she can you know not die horribly. Uh, so so the the uncertainty from the audience perspective of what exactly what's going to come next keeps you on your edge, uh, on the edge of your seat. Unlike you know the the inevitability of the ticking of Mizumono or some of these other set pieces, action set pieces we've had. Um, there is there's also some. Uh, what, what I think is really interesting in that set piece is the way it switches back and forth between Molly's perspective and uh, Dollarhide's perspective. So we start with Molly, and then as she slips back past him in the hall, we go to Dollarhide's perspective, and he gets as he gets agitated by them not being there, and then we switch back to Molly's perspective. Um, we stay with her until she drives away, and the, the 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 music kind of fades down, and the tension releases as she drives away. But then, this, then we go and we shift back to Dollarhide's perspective, and as he uh, lets out that yell to the air again, the tension rises once more, and it comes back up through, you know, his expression, his fury. Um, the the pitches come back up, the tension rises back up until we cut. So the that switch in perspective throughout the scene between Molly and Dollarhide. Uh, for me, at least, is reflected in the score. There is, in the previous scene, um, I, I mentioned the, the moments with Will Graham and the piano comes in, but I also wanted to mention that uh, when Hannibal says he has a family, the opening two notes of the Will's Happy Place theme come in. It's buried in the mix. There's a lot going on, but one of the things is the da-da, the chord, the double stop, and, and then the second note. Um, of the Will's Happy Place theme there, which is, you know, a, a really neat little touch. We haven't heard Will's Happy Place theme much, if at all, since Aperitivo, so that was really very neat. Um, also, we have... Uh, let's go to... I, I guess I'll just say one more, because we've been, we've been going um, for a while here. Uh, the, the last one I'll, I'll mention here is that we already talked about um, Don't You Want to Change... Um, 
when that when we when we end with that don't you want to change will uh we get this uh, uh very low pitch and then very high pitch um in, in the in the score and it's very it's unresolved it's there's no resolution to it at all you could say that the low pitch and the high pitch shows how far apart in their perspectives Hannibal and Will are at this point they're completely different places you could say that that underlines the uncertainty of what's going to come next of just where is Will at emotionally um for me it's just very unsettling um and it's effective in that way but uh there there's plenty more to talk about but you can go to Sound on Site um, and check out my post about the music for this episode if you if you want to get more into depth of some of these other some of the other scenes like the scoring for Reba and Dollarhead's breakup scene is very effective. Um, the you know the, there there are certainly moments of scoring that stand out, but for me this was more of an atmospheric kind of whole with that one classical selection really giving me you know just really letting me uh, get an extra. Goosebump, level of goosebumps to the the start of that of that Reba scene. Did you have any um, elements to the scoring that stood out to you? The one thing that did was in the transition between when Dollar Hyde leaves Hannibal's office and then we see Brian and Jimmy in there doing their work. I don't know what instrument is being played there, but it sounds like like a a moaning or a wailing that really I guess mirrors the the pain that the dragon would be feeling at, at this point. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 cause and I have that in my, in my notes, the, the groaning uh, of there continues straight through. And it, it's such a, I, there's a lot of um, specifically that transition, like you said, is completely seamless. They just lay the next you know scene right on top of it. Um, but yeah, that's very effective. That kind of groan. I, I don't know if that is more uh, of um, the, bull roar or something like that to get that kind of groaning sound or if it's an effect but it's certainly very effective all right well with that we will move on to the second of our recurring segments the devil in the details where we talk about the little things in the episode that stood out to us and i'll begin by saying um you mentioned earlier the the great chemistry that uh dollar and reba have or that the actors have but uh, that was especially highlighted in how at the end of that scene when they're watching the, or when he's watching his homework, they both take a sip from their drink at the same time, which I thought was fantastic. Oh, that's neat. I totally missed that. Uh, yeah, well, and especially, you know, that next extra creepy level of, you know, her just enjoying this beautiful uh, Debussy and, um, yeah, that's creepy. Um, now, I have a question for you. One of my uh, details here. I'm curious. I, I'm the. I loved that opening uh, uh, scene, like I mentioned earlier, with Jack and and Will and Alana. Said he ate a painting. He ate it up. Do you think that's a there will be blood reference? I drink it's your milkshake. I drink it right. It's gotta be right. So fun. <laughs> I'm glad that you got that. Yeah, I, that just occurred to me as I was rewatching rewatching it the other day. Um, for, for to take more notes um it's like oh why is that see i think it's there with blood and the other thing i have um from that scene and then i'll toss it back to you is um i love how prominent the visitor's badge is on will it's just it's like right clipped to his because alana has to have a visitor's badge too but it's we can't see it it's like 
tucked into a pocket or, you know, below frame, not not marring her gorgeous suit. Um, but for Will, it's just he wants to make sure everybody in that office knows he is a visitor. <laughs> uh, a couple Red Dragon notes for me. Uh, the Save Yourself, Kill Them All line, of course, being from the, the source material. But I just love how they continue to recontextualize stuff. It, I mean, it's also in the first scene where Hannibal visits, or where Will visits Hannibal, and he has his hand up to the ceiling as he's perceiving the the ceiling of, uh, what's the name of the place? Or do we know what he's looking at? That One of his various places that he has in his memory I'm, palace. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, but uh, again, the way that we see most of that conversation uh, between Dollarhide and Hannibal in his office, uh, and then the the final bit, save yourself, kill them all, or the kill them all part at least, is him on the phone in his cell. And then uh, the, oh, the, the mentioning of Hannibal talking about how they would be in communication. Uh, uh, personal ads or notes of admiration on toilet paper and that just being a, a funny nod to what actually happened in the source material. So I thought that that was good. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun, fun touch. I was, I, completely unaware of that of course um but some people were pointing that out on, on twitter i was like seriously guys huh so i'm glad that they poked fun that's a great detail um i have uh I, i've got a couple touches of one of the set design is some costuming when we see dollar hide and hannibal in hannibal's office um having their therapy session there's one shot of them um that put, puts Dollarhide on the left and, and Hannibal on the right and with the windows between. And then between the two windows is Hannibal's tree like uh, that he's been pruning and shaping. And because of the way that Armitage is like sort of hunched forward, I was seeing the tree looks to me like a person kneeling in reverence um, because there's, there's a gap between the bottom bow and then the next bow um is up and sort of angled, so it looks like they're the legs or the feet, and then the person's like legs as they're like leaning over in prayer and the, with a sloped back. Uh, so it, that really, I thought that was very interesting. The notion of, um, and a, probably unintentional, who knows? Maybe it's not. Great job, set designers, either way. Um, but it really made me think of Dollar Hyde you know, praying to Hannibal or bowing in reverence to Hannibal in that scene and uh, looking to him for guidance in this difficult time. Um, uh, do you have some more? Should I keep going? Uh, I just have one more. Um, okay, I'll do one more and then throw it back to you. Um, when we, when Dollarhead and Reba, are, when Dollarhead puts on the, the film, the, the, the film looks like scales, the way that they shoot it, which I thought was really neat. Ah, yeah, I also want to go and look back at the the, the pruning, because that's fascinating. Um, yeah, my last one here is after Will's conversation with Walter in the hospital, uh, as he's leaving to go talk to Jack. You can see in the background, he, like, taps both sides of the door. Uh, but the way that it is, because it's blurry, it also kind of just looks like he's shaking, which kind of matches the, the frustration or the, the resentment that Jack mentions is building up. But that was a great touch by Hugh Dancy, which I'm assuming wasn't in the script at all. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to I'll have to go back and look for that one. Um, I have a couple costuming things. Um, I love uh Will's button-down shirt when he's talking with Hannibal. Um, when while Mo, after Molly and Walter are at the vet, um, his button-down shirt mirrors Hannibal's jumpsuit, 
which, you know, so having him in a button down versus a different kind of shirt, the, the line of the buttons matches the line of the jumpsuit, um, which is, you know, I just noticed for the first time this week. Um, and I really like the use of blue when Will is at the hospital. Walter, the actor, is in a blue, um, like, shirt, and Jack is in a blue shirt, and there's the water fountain, the walls are all blue, and, and they're all an appropriate shade of blue to make Walter, that actor's eyes, really pop. And the, that's also the color timing done after afterwards, of course. But having the blue of Walter's shirt and the blue of Jack's shirt and the, the water fountain, you know, with, with the blue and the walls all really make you focus on and pay attention to, to Walter's eyes. And then also Will's in browns and greens, um, and very earthy as opposed to more cool water tones. So um, I thought that was a really neat kind of contrast there. And it's not just the, it's also the texture, the, the Will suit and like everything that he's wearing that his ensemble for that looks like it would just feel fantastic. Um, it feels very tactile. Whereas the, like, especially Jack suit feels much more sleek. Um, so again, it's highlighting the, like contrasting these characters. And, um, yeah, Alana just looks fabulous. Always love, 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 love her costuming still. Yeah, they've really stepped it up for her this season, and it's been paying off. Yeah. But uh, that will wrap up this week's discussion. Uh, another big thanks to Aaron Abrams for coming on and talking with us. And, of course, as always, to Kate. Uh, anything going on online that you'd like to let listeners know about? Um, well, there will be, but not yet. There will be blood. There will be something. Uh, but you can reach me on Twitter at the Televerse, um, and which is, of course, the name of the the weekly TV podcast I co-host for Sound on Sight. And you can listen to me talk about all the other shows over there, including for the Abrams fans listening, um, one of the shows that uh, that he's been in that I am the huge mega super fan of, Slings and Arrows. You can go into our our DVD shelf. Um, over at Sound on Sight to listen to us talk about that show. He was one of the leads in in, in that. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can just drop me a line on Twitter. It's the easiest way to, to reach out. And also, uh, thank you to Lee for emailing and Christine and some of the people who have been reaching out. Uh, we really love hearing from you guys. So thank you for, for reaching out. And you can reach me on Twitter at Sean Coletti and find my weekly reviews of Hannibal over at tvovermind.com. But that is it. For this week, Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 3, Episode 12. The number of the beast is 666. Uh, but until then, this has been another episode of This Is Our Design. Thank you for listening. Yeah.